What is happening, friends? Welcome to the Modern Wisdom Podcast. And today's guest is someone I've been looking forward to sitting down with for quite a while. This actually marks the beginning of a series of three episodes I recorded at Social Chain's headquarters in Manchester. You will notice a fantastic uplift in audio and video quality if you head to the YouTube channel. I had serious podcast studio envy. Um, so that may be where the, the next investment goes after seeing how beautiful theirs was. But on to today's episode with George McGill. We're talking all things mental models. This is a branch of learning which has emerged from the back of Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner, and been popularized by guys like Shane Parrish from fs.blog. And as humble as he is, George has a fantastic understanding of this entire subject area. They are general thinking concepts. So a lattice work of approaches which you can layer on top of each other, which help you to think. No one teaches us how to think. We just presume that it emerges naturally, but you can take the best principles and insights from different industries and actually create models of how to think from them. So yeah, I absolutely loved this episode. I found it super useful for me, and I'm certain that you will as well. Please welcome George McGill. George McGill, a social chain has joined me. How are you? I'm not too bad. How are you? Very good, thank you. Yeah. George Mack on Insta. <laughs> Twitter, no, no, no. Twitter, still not, yeah. not transferred across on Instagram. Yet. No, 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 need yeah. to. I like it. So what are we talking about today, George? Um, so I guess we, it's more like a theme of what we've been chatting about for like the last six to nine months, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is like mental models. Um, and how you sort of interpret that is like up to you. Like I particularly got it from like Charlie Munger, um, like Naval Ravikan, a few other thinkers about like almost like recipes for like regular decision making. If you can imagine like your consciousness is like a uh, like the OS, like mental models are just various sort of apps that you like plug in for like various um, decisions or situations that you find yourself in. And it's almost like this, I think Charlie Munger calls it like a lattice work, like from all the big like disciplines, whether that's like physics, whether that's business, whether that's microeconomics, because what a lot of people do will just specialize and go, okay, I learned biology. And then that's all I do. And they just go deep on that subject. Whereas that whole like Tim Ferriss strategy of taking the the 10% that covers 90% of it like from biology, like whether it's like evolution, whether it's homeostasis, um, and then going into like microeconomics and looking at like game theory, like race to the bottom, taking all these strategies and then almost trying to apply them instead of having to deal with like the overwhelm of everyday life. That's how I sort of interpret it. But then I, now it's much looser and just anything where it's like an analogy that helps me like explain things is really, really useful. Totally. So you introduced me to mental models when I first came in here actually <clears throat> to do uh, the podcast with the guys from Social Minds. Yeah. Um, and we sat down and you took me through it and it was the first time that I'd heard of it. Uh, Charlie Munger appears to be kind of like... Should we say who Charlie is? Patient zero for it, yeah. So yeah, so Charlie, he's less lesser known, but he um, is Warren Buffett's business partner, who obviously 
uh, uh, the guy who runs Berkshire Hathaway. So he's fourth like, richest man in the world. Is yeah, fourth, fourth of official richest man in the world. There's a lot of like unofficial people out there. Some narco that's like yeah, you know, one, yeah, yeah, one to yeah, twenty-five. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, he's Warren Buffett's business partner, and he's sort of been obsessed throughout his career of taking these ideas from the big disciplines. That's where I originally like got it from. Um, so like one, my favorite one from like Charlie was like just inversion which was like, this is like quite a nice introduction. This is probably like the most simple one. This you is an example of a Apply regularly, yeah, example of a mental model, right? So inversion is, almost comes from mathematics when you try and reverse a problem on its head. So for example, the best example I always use, because it's so woolly, trying to figure out, is inversion is particularly useful for those woolly conversations or those woolly questions. So like happiness, right? What is, like, how do I become happy? Like people spend their whole lives like exploring that question, like what's this purpose I've got to find? Like, do I have to go to a spiritual retreat in India and sit and meditate for two years? But instead, Munger would just say, you just flip it on its head and go, how would I make a happy person depressed? And it's like quite easy, the answer's there then, right? So first thing you do is mess with their, mess with their sleep schedule. Like completely flip it on their head, have them sleeping late, have them sleeping like awful, have blue light coming in. So you do that. Second one you do is mess with their nutrition. Like you'd have them eating awful food. You'd immediately isolate them from their friends. You'd put them in a shit job um, and you'd just take away any form of meaning or hobbies from their life. So you look at those five things there. If you avoid all of those five, you've basically achieved happiness, right? You're 95% the way there. So instead of like Munger basically looks at it as, instead of trying to seek excellence, just focus on avoiding stupidity. He says that's the success of his career. Mm. Like he's never gone out to seek like excellence, him and Warren. It's just always avoiding stupidity. So myself and my business partner, Darren, say something similar about club promo, that we're not fantastically talented club promoters. We've just made 10 years of mistakes that we've only ever made once. Okay. Because it is really technically only a mistake as far as I'm concerned if you make it twice. Like if it's a strategic learning experience that you choose not to learn from, it's kind of your fault. The first time that it happens, you're like, well, if you didn't know it, you didn't know it, you can't know what you don't know. So let's use, let's look at like club promo as a good example, right? So let's say I was starting my own night out. It's often very good to think about what would make a successful night out. So you'd be like thinking about getting a DJ in, getting XYZ in. But instead you should start from what would like make this go like absolutely awfully, like whether it's, you want to get your health and safety stuff in order, right? Mm-hmm. So focus poor on the stuff. management, too yeah. expensive drinks, poor service, bad smell, bad DJ. Yeah, it's that whole quote, like, show me where I'm going to die so I'll never go there. Yeah. Like, that's the key. And like, I was using this, like, this is one of the things I love about mental models is that they actually have like real world, like applicability. So I was thinking like, as I did on like a Sunday evening, just like reviewing stuff because I'm 25 next month. So I'm like almost 50% away from my 20s. I'm like, what do I want the rest of my 20s to look like? And that was just one of those overwhelming questions like what I couldn't answer. So I was like, huh, what do I definitely not want to go to? Um, so hold on, because I wrote this down on my phone. Let me get it up. So I was thinking like, what mistakes do I see people make in their 20s? And what like, could I actively go out and avoid? So the seven that I came up with was like number one, to avoid comfort in your 20s. Because if you're comfortable in your 20s, then you're just like absolutely screwed. Two, like hanging around or working with people who I don't admire. Three, doing easy things and like avoiding building like career moats that you can just compound and iterate off the back off. Four, neglecting or like abusing your health. Five, gaining liabilities and debt. Six, toxic relationships. Seven, feedbackless environments. And I realized if I avoid 
all of those seven. No matter what I do, if I just keep on focusing, avoiding all those seven, it's almost impossible to fail because by the very nature, these are all the things that's going to lead to failure. Mm -hmm. So instead of setting some goal where I want to earn X or I want to be ABC, I'm just focusing on avoiding those seven because I think it's so easy for people to get caught up in like chasing this big, big goal and forgetting like the dogs that are at the door that are coming to eat them. So focus on those seven, like particularly like a great example like is the toxic relationships one. Like I thought about this one quite a lot because you've almost got the two categories of toxic relationships, right? You've got the toxic, the, like the cliche one that you see on the news or an episode of the bill of like somebody being like physically abusive, right? Mm. But the one that I'd say affects people way more are the much more like passive ones that people like see, like, like sleep their way into. Um, Sorry, not sleep their way into, that's the wrong word there, mm. but maybe that's how you get there as well, right? But that you, every day, it just gets a bit worse. Death by a thousand cuts. And you start changing, which gets onto another mental model, right? So you then have like contrast. So, you, you know, Charlie Munger, in, it's called the psychology of human misjudgment, where he's talking about the frog in boiling water. You know, the famous anecdote where you put a frog in boiling water, it jumps out, you put a frog in cold water and slowly heat it up and it will just sit there till it dies. And he, he says at the end of it, he goes, I don't know if that's like a, a true thing about frogs, it's but, it's, but it's true of every business person that he's ever met and he's mm. dealing with elite business people. So mm-hmm. that's power of contrast. Power of contrast. Yeah, so that's almost like another mental model, right? So you look at contrast. I would say contrast is probably the most important thing for like human happiness. You like you can see it everywhere, like the, the hedonic treadmill. Like the fact that we live in the best time ever to be alive and people are still miserable. Like, I find that fascinating. Like why is that? So I spoke to Professor Rick Hansen, New York Times bestseller, um, writer of Hardwiring Happiness and his most recent book, uh, Resilience. Um, and what I came to about that was I thought that if you take Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you look at Paleolithic man, your grand, great, 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 great times a hundred grandfather, hundred thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago, the bottom of his pyramid would have been a lot more poorly serviced, safety, food, shelter, mm-hmm. warmth, hydration, um, all of that sort of stuff. The bottom end would have been a lot more poorly serviced, but because he was doing exactly what he needed, his attention was his to command. Um, the top end of the pyramid was looked after quite well. Whereas I think what's happened now is we flipped that on its head and you have very high degree of comfort. Most people in the 21st century in the Western world are not super concerned about their warmth, mm. their safety, their food, their comfort. All of that's been looked after, which leads to this existential crisis that's self-referential because the top has now been serviced less. Previously, you you would have been your job. It would have been a job for life. Your job might have been a craft or a trade that you could have taken some pride in. Flow from Mihail Csikszentmihalyi, <laughs> like alludes to that. Yeah. Deep work from Cal Newport also alludes to that. There's um, neurologically myelin, uh, m- creates around neurons that are continually firing, neurons that fire together, wire together. So in terms of the neuroscience behind it, it makes sense. Psychologically, it makes sense because you are able to feel some inherent degree of aptitude and and prowess and finesse in doing something difficult that's challenging and worthwhile and overcoming it. 
And then uh, just generally in terms of what that says about you socially as well, people think, oh, you, you are adding value because you have that. Whereas in the modern world now, a lot of knowledge workers have no feedback mechanism. Like you wake up, you had 100 emails, you go to bed, you've done 100 but received 103. Mm. I've got 103 emails. You're like, did I do a good job? Did I do a bad job? I have no idea. So I think that in the 21st century, one of the problems is that we don't have an effective feedback mechanism for when work has been done for a lot of people in a lot of jobs. Like if you're a smith or a carpenter or a farmer or anyone, you know when the field's been ploughed, you know when the wheel's been made, you know when the car's been fixed. And there's an inherent amount of satisfaction that comes with that. And the same thing would have come from if your total your uh, hierarchy of needs began and ended with keeping your family safe and having enough food to eat, once you've achieved that, there you go. That's Your self-actualization has been made because that's how high mm. your hierarchy of needs goes. However, when you have looked after that, you start to look at things that are actually a lot more difficult for you to reach. So that was my hypothesis about why we have that in the modern world. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think for like from an like element of like contrast about how we actually utilize contrast in particular like, so i had a real word this is where it all came from i wrote a twitter thread on this like last year was a salford hospital which is like a couple of miles away from where we are now um, and i had a family member that was ill so literally four five six days of the week i'd go in after work and go there and it, going back to inversion before it's like an inverse instagram feed right mm. so on instagram you're scrolling through artificial lives that are meant to make yours look worse. Mm -hmm. Whereas walking around the hospital, you're looking at real lives who would do anything to change like positions with you. Um, I remember once I just, I was sat opposite um, a guy who was obviously a former uh, soldier who had like severe dementia. So the contrast of like going through a hospital ward, because I look at my life. So let's say for example, my life's an eight out of 10. When I'm on Instagram, I'm looking at 10 out of 10 lives mm. and I'm contrasting my 8 out of 10 with a 10 out of 10 and feeling the minus 2. Mm. Whereas when you walk around the hospital ward where people are dying, mm. you're contrasting your 8 out of 10 with, you could argue, like a 0 out of 10 or so 1 you, out of 10. You told me, I think it was around exactly the same time that you recommended I read The Last Highlander by Alistair Urquhart. Yeah, Forgotten Highlander. Forgotten Highlander. Forgotten Highlander. Sure, we'll, check, we'll check afterwards with some cool. Highlander. Anyway, Alistair Urquhart, book is fantastic. For anyone who's read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, like, imagine that and make it extreme. Like, this guy was captured by the Japanese, put in numerous prisoner of war camps, helped to br build the bridge over the River Kwai, was strapped in a tin, basically a tin box, and left out in the sun for a couple of days, suffered with, like, every tropical disease under the sun, basically had dysentery, constantly for four years then got strapped on one of these death ships and didn't have any food or water at over 100 degrees fahrenheit for like a week as he traveled across the ocean then got out then got put in another death camp and then got hit by the aftershock of nagasaki's bomb drop like literally got blown off his feet by the heat and then kept quiet about it for 60 years 50 years and then basically wrote this as a memoir which is also a movement to call the Japanese government to count for the atrocities mm. that occurred under that because it was kind of brushed under the rug a little bit, had the Gutenberg trials and things like that, but there wasn't really an equivalent. It was a Gutenberg trial, wasn't it? I'm not sure. Uh, the um, uh, Nazi war crime mm -hmm. trials. 
um, but you didn't have an equivalent really for the Japanese. So anyway, he, he did all that. And that again, the c- contrast there that you can apply between that life and your own, and the same occurs for a lot of things. So we've moved through, we've had inversion, yeah, we've had contrast. The Charlie Munger speech that you mentioned about is um, pretty seminal kind of starting this off, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the video guy, Dean, will make the link to the video appear in the top corner. And if you're watching, uh, if you're listening on iTunes, it will be in the show notes below. But it's... On the, so just to put in, on the contrast one, because we've, ch- we've chatted this metaphor before, just to like finally hit it home. Like this is the perfect example of the power of contrast that comes from Charlie Munger's speech. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bucket's Hands experiment, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think it comes from Bob Cialdini's work where they had three buckets. So on the left-hand side, they had a freezing ice-cold bucket. On the right-hand side, they had a boiling hot bucket. So what they get people to do is put their left hand in the freezing one and the right hand in the boiling one and leave it there for a minute or two, right? Then in the middle, they'd have a lukewarm, just neutral um, water that they'd move their hands into. And obviously the one that had just been in the freezing cold water suddenly felt like this water was incredibly hot, whereas the one that had been in the, the boiling hot water, that water felt incredibly cold. So objectively, the water is the exact same temperature, mm-hmm. but it's just what you're contrasting against. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is like the true power of contrast that I see. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's so good. So Charlie Munger's speech was actually delivered... It's like a, was it a graduation speech? Stam- no, so it was two. There's one, I think, at University of South Carolina, I believe. And there's also the one he gave to, which is the graduation speech, but there's also the one that he gave at um, Stanford uh, University called The Psychology of Human Misjudgment, yeah. when he breaks down sort of mental model by mental model that people sh- should look to uh, look to apply to their lives. There's a shortened version of that, which will be linked in the show notes below, which has actually been animated. I sent that to you a little yeah. while ago, which is really good. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, this appears to be, that speech seems to form the basis of one of our favourite blogs, which is Farnham Street. Yeah. Uh, is which, that, by the way, many people don't know, Farnham Street is the um, address, address of Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway. Do Buffett you know what it used to be before that? No. What it, The predecessor to that, it was the zip code. Okay. It was just this weird collection of letters. So um, anyone who is a big, big fan of Shane Parrish from Farnham Love Street, Shane. he did a podcast on Brett McKay's Art of Manliness podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is fantastic and tells you an awful lot about just how Farnham Street came to be. And that's where I found out about the beginning. Charlie Munger's Psychology of Human Misjudgment was basically what triggered, um, or appears to be what triggered Shane Parrish to start up this blog, fs.blog, which is one of the best resources on the internet. The fact that it's free <laughs> blows my mind. Um, just for learning about these mental models, he has a list of 109 which will also be linked in the show notes below and you should definitely check out. You can clip the entire page with Evernote Clipper and send it to your Kindle so you can read or you can put it in pocket or whatever you're using to read. But that appears to be kind of the patient zero for the start of this. And then we're going to move through a few more for the rest yeah. of today. So what I'm thinking, so we can go into one that like that people hear a lot about now, mainly because it's been popularized by Elon Musk, which is like first principles, which comes from physics. So this is the art, like the basically art form of deconstructing something so you can, in order to reconstruct it. So like a, um, a great example of that is where Elon talks about, I believe it's like the batteries for 
it's either Tesla or SpaceX. And people would say, and it was, it was particularly SpaceX, and it was like, let's say, for example, it was 1,200 pounds of batteries. And everyone's like, reasons from analogy. So they just reason from the way it's been before and just copy and paste that thinking, like really muddy thinking. So they have a particular mode of looking at the world, yeah, which is called reasoning from analogy. Yeah. What's that? So reasoning from analogy, so this is the example, right? So let's say with the batteries, it will an example of reasoning from analogy would be it's always cost £1,200 to create this battery. There's no way you could do it on a like a, an affordable way to do it. So just breaking down from first principles would be to go, okay, let's deconstruct what this question actually is. So what is the battery made up of? So like lithium, and you go, you go breaks down all the, the ingredients that are part of the batteries. And he goes, okay, how much would this cost to buy off the London Metal Exchange? And it comes down to like a tenth of the price. And he goes, okay, so then all we need to do is find a cost-effective way of putting these ingredients back together to create the batteries. So that's literally like first principles, um, thinking like fully breaking it down to its core components. Paul Graham has like an unbelievable essay called like um, Why Not to Start a Startup? And he basically, like, if you ask, like, people, like, for example, you'll have mates who want to start businesses, right? And there's there's this, like, conversation going on in their head. And often, whether it's, like, breaking up with someone or starting a new chapter in their life, there's, like, all this stuff going on in their head. And there's, like, 12 different reasons all into one that are all intertwining. So what Paul Graham basically recommends doing is how can you even assess a situation until you've gone through every single reason, written them down, and then look, is that valid or what's the truth about that? And break down the reality of each situation mm-hmm. um, that's stopping you from doing something. But first principles is a fascinating one. Like I remember we chatted about this before, but like where to actually apply it to, and maybe we could try that now, which is that one thing I'm obsessed with is how can we completely destroy the modern education system? Because I despise it with a passion. Mm. Um, so let's just look at like education from like a first principles perspective. So like a great example, like instead of talking about what subjects, let's just break it down to what time should school start? Because like, that's a huge part of it, right? Mm. The time they arrive and the time that they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Daniel Gross, who has like some amazing mental models, talks about this. He goes, why does school start at 9 a.m.? It's so that parents can drop the kids off before they go to work. Right. But all the research suggests that kids start... You remember, right, when you're a teenager, you wake up, You want to wake up at 12. Yeah. So you have a whole nation of kids who are underslept and sleep deprived. No wonder they fucking hate school. Well, that's why they changed the start time of high school in America in a particular state. That I can't remember. This is cited in Joe Rogan's Matthew Walker podcast number 1109. And what he says is they moved the start time for school back by, I think, an hour or an hour and a half. And they reduced the number of road traffic accidents down by 25% in people under the age of 21 because the sleep deprivation that was being suffered was out of the, the times that school was starting was out of alignment with the natural circadian rhythm of people of that age. And by avoiding that, they downstream from that didn't need to change anything to do with crossings, didn't need to change anything to do with education, just needed to give the people behind the wheel a bit more sleep. So going back to, yeah, I I completely agree. So going back to the first principles perspective, right? So let's look at what time should school start? Then it's almost how do we teach? So one thing I find fascinating is if I was learning a subject now, I wouldn't learn 10, 15 subjects at once. Mm. So why are we doing this for kids? Would it be better to have a year where they go deep in biology or they go deep in a specific subject that they've chosen. Why is it you do like an hour 
of history and then an hour of psychology, then an hour of this. And as a result, you'd chase 10 rabbits and get none. Maybe a bit of that is due to low attention. Like if, if all I had to do was like maths for a year or even a week, probably get pretty bored. I think there's probably a refreshing side. You, the point that you're making though is that you can look at, as opposed to accepting the old guard and reasoning from analogy, which mm-hmm. is copy and paste, you can actually just start scratch and look at it. So I think we do this with the relationship series. We mm-hmm. look at, okay, so exactly what is supposed to be a relationship and why why are we accepting of certain things? What are the best practices that you can move through? What are the component parts, the, the distilled down to its core elements? What are the actual individual parts of what a relationship should be and how you should interact with someone? Um, so yeah, first principles, anyone who's watched Elon Musk on Joe Rogan will have heard him talk about this a lot and he's a big mm-hmm. proponent of it, right? A hundred percent. And like, I was thinking about, it. I was away in Gran Canaria recently and it was like saying, it's one of those holidays like where usually I'll go to like Amsterdam or Budapest with friends and you'll be drinking and going out and you come away from that needing a holiday. Whereas this, you was just isolated in the sun, just thinking about stuff. And I was trying to break down like, what's the first principles of my life? Like what? are the, the things that really matter. And I was thinking, all that I sort of want and I want to optimize is time and energy. So time as in how much like time I have in the day, what am I doing with my time? And then obviously energy as well, because let's say I have 24 hours in a day to do whatever I want, but I'm really sick. Like that's a pointless life, right? So if you, every decision now, I'm just trying to filter through, will this give me more time? Will this give me more energy? How do I want to spend my time? How do I want to spend my energy? Whereas beforehand, you have so many like analogies just rolling through your head of what how like? you should be living your life. Like, should I be doing this because this person thinks that? Or should I be here at 25? Should I be doing this? Like, what should I should I care about how many followers I've got here? Like, whereas now I'm just thinking about time and energy. And you realize that's all you've got. And that's all you should ultimately optimize for. When you break it down to its core components, what's more important than time? And energy. So Cal Newport talks about work done equals time times intensity. Yeah. That's the formula that he comes with as part of deep work. Mm-hmm. And you are correct. I can't help but think as you're saying that, that if anyone ever needed a one sentence justification for why you should go sober, that you've just, <laughs> you've just deployed it there. Yeah. Like, because it saps both of the two most precious resources that you have as first principles in your life. Mm-hmm. So what have we got next? What are we moving on to? Um, so what we got next? Um, well, I'll tell you what, just, just to finish off the, the first principles one, because I used the perfect like metaphor, similar to the buckets one, right? Yeah. Is that um, up in, like, if you look when the wheel was invented, it was invented like 2000, God knows how many years ago, right? Mm-hmm. But bags have been around for ages. And for ages, people would just reason by analogy and would just make a prettier looking bag. Mm. And then around about the 70s or 80s, one guy realized, why the fuck aren't we putting wheels on these things? Mm. He puts wheels on it. And now you could, could you imagine suitcases without, without wheels That's now? Rory Sutherlandism, isn't it? On the podcast I did with Rory, he said, I can't believe we put a man on a moon before we put wheels on a suitcase. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And part of that, he says, is likely due to the fact that inline skates and skateboarding costs and casters and things like that became cheaper as a byproduct of the proliferation of those minor sports. But the fact that you could have, like, you could have definitely put, at the very least, a little roller or something on mm-hmm. the bottom of it. Um, yeah, you, you're completely correct. 
So next one, um, what I was this one's like, I've not really seen it fleshed out as much elsewhere, but it's one I've been thinking about ages. I wanna, I'm gonna write a Twitter thread on it at some point, cause that's what I do. I'll have an idea running around in my head for weeks and then I go, okay, I've got a thread now. Um, so like double think, which comes from George Orwell's 1984, right? Which is to hold two contradictory beliefs in your head at the same time. And we were chatting about this, like, and it comes, you see these mental models elsewhere, right? So Nassim Taleb has like the barbell strategy where it's all the weight to either ends of the spectrum. So the way I was thinking about this on the drive down today, which is people say you don't want to think in black and white. I think you want, sorry, black or white thinking. You want black and white thinking. It's the shades of gray is where you go to die. So anything like in between. So we'll give like the perfect example of this, like the ability to do intense, focused, deep work with intense serendipity and socialization and all that stuff in the middle is where you go to die. Like black and white thinking is so underrated and the perfect example, because I know Nick Sasbo, uh, I heard a podcast with him in Naval where he calls it like quantum thought, where he's sort of holding two opinions at the same time and he's mm-hmm. running through, running, running them through his head. Like Connor McGregor's coach, John Kavanagh, he talks about how during training, he wants his fighters to be completely egoless and think they're basically losers and just constantly obsessed with improving. And he wants them to get tapped by everyone mm. and learn what they're doing wrong. Mm. But as soon as fight week comes, he wants them to think they're completely invincible. So it's this weird like paradox that exists of like two polar end of the spectrums that you have to exist between. And Matthew Syed has a similar concept with like golfers. So let's say for example, a golfer is about to take a swing. Um, before he takes that swing, he has to have extreme self-doubt where he's going, okay, what club should I be using here? What's the perfect swing? But as soon as he's gone through all that self-doubt and gone through of it all, he then needs to switch to a state of complete and total confidence. So it's that double think, two ends of the spectrum that you have to exist between. Whereas if you sort of are midway between it where you're a little bit confident, but a little bit of self-doubt, mm. those shades of grey is just where you go to die. I totally get that, man. Matthew Syed, if you are listening, please reply to my email. <laughs> I would love, I would love to have you on the podcast, but you're pying me harder than some girls do. So, um, it's pretty hard. yeah, it's pretty hard. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do, I do get that. Um, I like the idea of black and white thinking. I think what a lot of people will tend to do is allow cognitive biases to come in and they will do white and white thinking or black and black thinking. Yeah, yeah, of course. Which is, um, another, we were discussing last night over dinner about how steel manning another person's argument can yeah. be a fantastic way to get around this. So Charlie Munger has, he calls it his iron prescription in that he refuses to have or state publicly an opinion on something unless he can state the opposing opinion better than the other side can. So like the best, like one of the best political experiments I've ever seen was on, um, we chatted about this last night, was on the Jimmy Kimmel show. So what he did during the Trump and Hillary election would, he basically would go out in the street and interview a load of like Hillary supporters. I mean, I think they did the same for Trump supporters as well, but they would list like a load of policies that Hillary Clinton was planning on implementing and they'd be going, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. That's absolutely, yeah, Classic completely great, great immigration policies, great economic policies. But at the end, you'd basically reveal to them that it was Trump's policies and you'd see like the cognitive dissonance where the MPC computers were just about to like explode, right? And that's that goes back to another mental model, which is like identity. And Charlie talks about this, about when you go around shouting publicly as you do with these students now, like, I believe X, I believe Y, I believe Z. You, you think you're drilling it to the outside world, 
but you're actually drilling it into yourself. And as soon as you identi- identify as something, that's it. It can either be a superpower or like the death of you. Mm. Like if you would, for example, identify as like a non-smoker, which James Clear talks about, it's a yes. way of kicking smoking, right? But if you, like I know Robert Cialdini, he got to the stage where he wouldn't want to sign a petition for something that he believed in because he would then begin to identify with that cause and would find it very difficult to think clearly. Yeah. Uh, Identity is a really, really weird one. It is a difficult one. Can we do signal versus noise? Go for it. So uh, signal versus noise, like... This is one of my favourites, by the way. Yeah, like how you go about, particularly in the 21st century, like establishing what's true and what's going to be gone tomorrow. And you can almost tie in another mental model there, which is like the Lindy effect. Um, So the Lindy effect, I believe it was a load of comedians sat around in a cafe and they realised that a comedian's lifespan was almost there. Well, how, let's say, for example, they've been around for two years. You can assume they're going to be around for two years more. It's the minimum uh, future lifespan. Exactly. So if, let's say, a book's been around, like The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin, it's been around for a couple hundred years, you can assume it's going to be around for a couple hundred years more. At least. But the fucking blog post you've just read on BuzzFeed, if it's been around for a day, it's probably not going to be around there tomorrow. Yeah. So, I mean, you'll hear, if you look on Twitter and you see the circles that George moves within. By the way, George is followed by some of the biggest dicks on Twitter, and by big dicks, I mean like honking, huge, throbbing, really impressive people. Naval Ravikant, uh, Rory Sutherland's bot, just just recently done you as well, hasn't he? There's like there's a there's a there's a number of others, <laughs> but yeah, he has he's done you. <laughs> um, and the uh, the circles that these guys move within, you'll see them talk a lot about read a Lindy book. Yeah. And what they mean by that is read something which has been around for a significant period of time. So to inverse that on the head, David Perel has a great point. Has, he has a great podcast, North Star one. Um, I think he was chatting to Keith Raboy maybe about this. And if 99% of people, all the content they consume was made in the last 24 hours. Yeah. And this is what makes... And and then that ties into another mental model. You see how these are all linked, right? Which is like evolution, which by the fact it's only been around for a day, you can assume it's half span, it's lifespan's only be another day more. Mm. Like that is awful content. Whereas if something survived for 200 years, you know there's something like foundational to that material that you should look to seek out. So you you can see how these all tie together. That's why the classic books are the classics, right? Yeah. That's why War and Peace or... 1984 is a good read. Do you know the best fucking example? This is one's but I that I'm a I made this mistake and like I know for a fact there'll be loads of other people with like particularly in like entrepreneurship and business. So the amount of people and I love Gary Vee, I, I like Ty Lopez, I think they're probably doing a lot of good for the world, Grant Cardone, all these like modern YouTube entrepreneurs, which A aren't even the richest dudes like people in the world, they've probably got about a seven, eight figure net worth, but let's leave that aside. Um, like I said, I'm not criticizing these guys, but the amount of people I know who are similar to me who only listen to their content mm. but have no clue who John Rockefeller is, yeah. who have no clue who Benjamin Franklin is, no clue who J.P. Morgan is. Like the actual people throughout history who've changed society, like John Rockefeller was the, the first billionaire. Like his net worth at one point, I believe, was like 3% of the US G- GDP. <laughs> so he shits all on Jeff Bezos, like yeah. shits on Relative. Jeff Bezos. Yeah. So if you actually go back through history and see what survived, you're going to get like so many gems from studying like Rockefeller. Like I'll give you some examples. Like I was watching, so I listened to that and I was going, that so applies to me. So I was like, shit, I need to watch some documentaries on well, these you guys. you get seduced, people get seduced by newer is better. Yeah. Which is just a bias. Recency bias. Again, another mental model, right? It's recency bias. Recency bias, bias. yeah. And on top of recency bias, there'll be um, 
uh, what's the one like closeness bias, like where it's just the fact that it's more visible or visibility uh, bias, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Um, that it's the brand new self help book which just came out one month ago. You're like that. Mo- that's got all the latest research in. It's got this, and you're like, well, yeah, but look that's at life. look yeah. at Lindy. Like that. Yeah. It's not a Lindy book. Like it's been around for a month, so presume it's probably going to be around for a month, maybe more. Yeah. But you don't know. That's why when you hear Rory Sutherland, he cites Bob Caldini all the time. Like that art of persuasion is like mm-hmm. years. So it was crazy about um, Bob Charlie. Just off topics briefly. So his book um, Persuasion, I believe it's true that Charlie and Warren. Love that book so much. You got to think he probably made a, he sold millions of copies, so he's probably done well from that. Mm. But Charlie and Warren love that book so much. I believe they gave him Series A shares in Berkshire Hathaway. I don't know what that means. Um, so as in like Berkshire Hathaway, their business, mm. they gave him like high end shares within Berkshire Hathaway because they loved the book so much. Just because he contributed. Yeah. Fuck. Apparently, Bob Cialdini was behind because then you tie into like Scott Adams and go for a, mental, a couple of mental models from him because I know Scott's a big like uh, fan of his. Um, like he was behind a lot of Obama's presidency, like uh, campaigns, which goes to show like that's one of the best campaigns that's like ever existed. And apparently, when Clinton was beginning to turn it round, because you look at like uh, Trump and Clinton's persuasion techniques, um, Trump just completely shat all over Hillary, right? Mm-hmm. But when uh, Hillary hired Cialdini and brought him in, it has began to improve mm-hmm. like considerably, considerably. But whilst we're on the topic of Scott Adams, he has some great mental models. Which is Who's like, Scott Adams? Scott Adams is the creator of Dilbert, um, like the, one of the most controversial slash interesting Twitter feeds. If you ever want to learn how to write, so you can learn within two minutes. Uh, the essay is called like the best... Uh, sorry, what's it called? It's called The Day You Became a Better Writer. And within... Uh, it's about 10 sentences and he covers everything you can know about, like learning how to write, like completely changed the way I write. First it's just pure, pure simplicity. But he has like, like goals versus systems um, as a way of like navigating the career space, right? Or what you want to do with your life. So a goal, for example, would be, let's use obviously your insane when it comes to the health stuff. So a goal would be like, I want to bench 200 kg a day, or I want to get to 10% body fat. And I mean, first off, you know it better than anyone, right? 90% of people never even reach their goals. Mm. Um, whereas a system, and similar to Jay, I know James Clear covers this a little bit with his atomic habits, um, a system is something that you do every single day. And let's say you look at those two realities, like two identical versions of George, one that does goals, one that does systems. So the systems is actually what the work requires to get the goal. So you're more likely to get there. But also through doing systems thinking, because you're like hitting it every day, you're happy every day. Mm. And like, as you mentioned, you can tell the car analogy that you told me yesterday. Um, rather than a goal, you're literally miserable until you hit it. And then when you hit it, the day, next day, you're like, okay, what's the next thing? Yeah. So systems thinking, but tell the, what was the car analogy you told me last night? Really so there's cool. a, couple, a couple of things. James Clear, w- one of the main reasons that he doesn't like goals as a, a route towards direction in life is that you presume the reason, if there's two people that have the same goals and one person wins and another person loses, the presumption is because one person's goal was greater than the others or that someone wanted it more. But when you put the Olympic final of the 100 metres, there's no one on the start line who doesn't have the goal of winning. (laughs) The difference (laughs) between all of them is the system. It's not the goal. And the car analogy that James Clear uses, which is fantastic, is that if you are on the right trajectory but haven't completed the goal that you want to and are complaining about it, it is exactly the same as sitting in a car, moving on a motorway and complaining about not being there yet. You're yeah. like, hang on, 
you're moving in the right direction at the optimal speed and doing all of the things you need to do, all that's left is to continue. Mm -hmm. Like it sounds when you look at that and when you uh, analogize that, it sounds so juvenile to go, oh, we're not there yet. And like, and you know, the th- you throw the toys out the pram. Yeah. And yet on a daily basis, we all see people going, well, like I- I've been dieting for four weeks and I've been hitting the gym every day. And look, I st- I'm still not 5% body fat. And you're like, mm. look, man, like it- it- you just need to continue to sit on the motorway yeah. with your foot pressed down on the, on the, on the uh, accelerator pedal. So um, let's go back to signal versus noise. Signal versus noise. Um, remind me to come on to the Lollapoza effect because that's the ultimate mental model. But um, signal versus noise is then, sorry, we were chatting about this last night, weren't we? Me and Chris often have this thing where we have strands of conversations that just end up like absolutely You've got to bring you back to the main so trunk. So Chris then. is good at this stuff. So signal versus noise is detecting like the information that actually matters versus 99% of the noise that's out there that is just absolutely garbage that people can often get confused with. Um, the, perf- it- the perfect analogy for this, for understanding signal versus noise, is that trading one that I, I mentioned to you yeah. last night. So let's say that you were looking at the uh, daily reports from the market. Uh, you'd put a trade on, on in some stock and the plan was to leave it long term. If you were to look, and this is a Shane Parrishism, if you were to look at it at the beginning of year one and at the end of year one, you've probably got 50% of the information or 50% of the movement is going to be signal mm. and 50% of the movement is going to be noise. So you think, oh, okay, like, uh, you know, 50% of what has happened, I probably need to take heed of. However, as you begin to increase the frequency at which you look at the market movements, let's say that you now look at it every six months, there's more noise and less signal. Let's say that you look at it every day there's almost all noise and almost zero signal because all that you're concerned about is does this information help me to make an effective decision? And signal versus noise explains or helps you to understand that you have to be able to discern what is important and what you should take heed of versus what is going to be tomorrow's fish and chips wrapper. Yeah. And Lindy ties into that quite nicely. So this is it, right? All these mental models kind of like a lattice work, right? They all fit together. But the the godfather for me, the ultimate meta mental model, I don't know, you know, do you know the Lollapoza effect? This comes from Charlie, right? Which is that, every, like, it's, it's another mental, we've got too many mental models here. But then you have like compound interest when things all, like obviously it builds momentum on itself. So when you have multiple mental models working together or multiple, multiple cognitive biases working together, that's when you have like a holy shit effect. So like, I'll give you a good example of this is, um, you know, uh, auctions. So let's say when people go to auctions, you have a few like Warren and Charlie now refuse to go to auctions because they've got screwed out of them so many times. So let's say, for example, an item's on sale. You've got to look at what like cognitive biases you have there. So first off, you have like social proof because you've got everybody looking at you and you're trying to impress them. You've got contrast because it's like the frog in boiling water. So let's say you said 20 pounds to begin with. Uh, but now you're at two grand, but because every time you're just going up a little bit more, mm-hmm. a little bit more, a little bit more, so you don't feel it. You've also got consistency bias because you've said, I want this, and you've said it to a room full of people. Mm-hmm. You've got authority bias because you've got the guy on the stage. Probably got sunk cost fallacy. You've got sunk cost. So when you have a, that's a lollapoza effect, is when you have like five or six of these things working together and just compounding. Mm-hmm. And that's when you create like something like real crazy. So mental models are almost, you never see them by themselves. They're all like connected and intricated and within themselves. It's, it's fascinating. Um, is it direction over speed uh, or is it uh, speed over velocity? That's a Shane Parrish one, which is, which is, I think, what he talks about the difference between 
uh, efficiency and effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And Johnny talks about this a lot, that he thinks a lot of people, and it's the reason that he doesn't use Alfred. The reason he doesn't use Alfred is because he thinks he is making himself faster at going in uh, an in optimal direction, okay. a suboptimal direction, yeah. as opposed to he wants to spend all of his time just making sure that whatever direction he is moving in is as effective as possible. And he's like, adding speed on top of a poor direction is just sending you further in a in the wrong way. Mm. And that does make a lot of sense. And that obviously ties in with the sunk cost fallacy, mm-hmm. which is I have dedicated X amount of my life to whatever this particular direction is so far. I may as well continue going. And you're like, no, man, like cut your losses. Like if you know in your heart of hearts that another decision would make you more happy, another direction would make you more happy, bounce off and go that mm. way. So what else have we got? Give me, so give me what, some more mental This models. is one that I sort of, uh, not, sorry, I didn't create it. I got it from um, Eric Weinstein, but I wrote an essay on it, which is like high agency. And I think this is like the most important personality trait when I look at like friends who I know are going to do shit and friends who I know probably aren't going to do shit, um, it, high agency is by far like the single biggest factor. So the way Eric Weinstein talks about it is like, do you believe the story that's given to you? Like, so let's say, for example, I go, oh, Chris, you can't set up an events company. You're, you're 20 years old. Okay. Low agency people go, oh, right, okay, I'll just go and get a job X, Y, Z here. Whereas the high agency person is like, oh, fuck, fuck you. I'm going to like figure out a way of doing this. And I, there's some almost like core tenets of high agency when I see people, and I, I want to get much better at this. I'm not an expert here, but it's almost the ability to have like a, a real high locus of control. So like Josh Waskin has um, this metaphor where what he's doing to teach his son right now, almost like a, a locus of control, is whenever the weather's shit, like he goes out and plays in there and goes, look how great the weather is. Mm-hmm. Whereas the average person, whenever it's an awful weather day, it's like, oh, it's rubbish today. So never outsource your locus of control. You control your mental state. The second one is like going back to first principles earlier. So you almost have to reason from first principles and go, okay, everyone's doing this. Is that actually the correct way? Let's break it down. Um, the next one, you're obviously going to need like some like insane work ethic and you're going to need some like creativity. And if you are figuring out like how this is how you identify high agency people, it comes from Jeff Bezos. Um, he calls it resourcefulness. But it's basically the exact same thing, which is if you was in a third world prison, what friends would you call to break you out? And like you can immediately you'll think now, take 10 seconds, you go, which friends would I call? And then you've got, oh, okay, that's a high agency person because you by their very nature, you're going to have to be quite smart to do that. You have to reason from first principles. Um, you're going to have to use all the stuff that you have to have internal locus of control, right? High agent, I'll give you some examples, right? Because I need to do a thread on this. Like my, one of my favorite examples of high agency behavior, and I hope they make a film on this, was, you know, the whole Silk Road stuff, right? So Silk Road, the arguably the biggest drug empire, certainly ever online, one of the biggest drug, drug empires ever. Do you know who took him, took um, Dread Pirate Roberts down, the guy who was running it all? So bear in mind, the FBI was after him, couldn't do shit. DAA was after him, couldn't do shit. Um, the person who took Ro- um, Ross Ulbricht down was um, a IRS tax inspector via Google. For me, that is mental. And then we can go into like asymmetry, right? So the fact that one individual on their fucking computer of an internet connection mm. can outperform the FBI and the, the DEA. Do you, know how they, do you know how they found him? So 
he just decided he started googling went back through to the old forums and found a post on a bitcoin forum about it um contacted the forum about the email address that was registered and it was rossalbrick at gmail.com mm-hmm. and this is how it gets mental so he then presents it to his superiors who didn't believe him for months mm. and then they as they as they finally began to catch up with him mm. they, they actually realized he was correct yeah. all along and this is like the power of high agency behavior where like you have mark zuckerberg in his college dorm room who can take down the entire media industry you have jeff bezos who's taking down all of commerce basically you have satoshi nakamoto who's you could is definitely redesigning the banking sector. Yeah, exactly, you've got, you've got Joe Rogan who's completely taking over media and broadcasting. PewDiePie gets more views, like four times as many views as CNN. Yeah. Right, so hi, like high agency behavior is the most like important personality trait out there. Like another question that Peter Thiel has, which is like, he asks people like, "What's your ten year goal?" And they'll go, "Okay, so I want to build X Y Z." He goes, "How would you do that in six months?" And then shit, you start like going, "Fuck, fuck." Okay, I've got to figure out how to do this now. Like high agency behavior is probably the most important thing to cause it. And this explains why you have people who've read all these fucking books um, and they don't do anything mm-hmm. because by its very, whereas you have like, I know you chat about your uh, business partner, Darren, right? Mm-hmm. Who's not that book smart, but I bet you could say he's high agency. Right? If he was in a third world prison, I bet he'd be one of the people you he would to he, you he'd, out. he'd be out immediately. He'd have yeah. done their accounts for them and they'd be, they'd have, <laughs> they'd have, let, him, they'd have let him free. No, you are, you are completely Can right. Can I do another example? Yeah. Watch one on YouTube the other day. So this um, kid from a rough part of London, black kid from London, and he wants to be a success, right? So most people would like research it online or do X, Y, Z. You know what he did? And the good thing about high agency behavior is because by its very nature, because it's so low barrier, if you go above and beyond everyone else, you stand out like a fucking sore thumb. Yeah. So you know what he did? He found out, he just searched, where is the richest part of London? Realized it was Kensington. And just started knocking on doors, asking for advice. <laughs> the, the second house that he knocked on, I believe it was the MD of BlackRock, <laughs> who just said, you want an internship? Yeah. And then he got an internship there. And like that for me is like, wow, that's some like real high agency stuff. Yeah. I, I love, love that. Um, I want to talk about asymmetries. Okay. I know that asymmetry, I don't know if it classes particularly as a mental model, but it's something yeah, that yeah. you should. I, mean, I think you want to be as loose as possible with these mental models and however it works for you. So this almost comes from, like, yeah, of course it is. It comes from mathematics, right? Where it's like, it's a very asymmetrical relationship, like the inverse of symmetry, right? So a gr- way of looking at it is upside and downside risk, right? So asymmetrical risks are something where the upside is incredibly small and the downside is is horrific. Almost bottomless. Almost bottomless. Perfect example, texting whilst driving. Yep. Drink uh, drink driving. Like there's there's so many out there um, unprotected sex. Unprotected sex. Yeah. Cuz let's say let's go back to the texting whilst driving one. The benefit that you get is probably responding lol to a group chat which you you not even remember that message in a Negligible. week from now. The the risk that you have is maybe being paralyzed for the rest of your life ending up in prison, um, killing someone. Mm -hmm. So that's like asymmetrical risk, but there's a flip side of that, right? Which is like asymmetric opportunities. And we chat about this all the time. So you flip it on its head. Um, One of my favorite ones for like asymmetrical opportunities is um, just DMing people. Anyone who you think is doing like something interesting, just go, hey, I love this. And it's particularly if you have a skill you can offer, just go, oh, you know, you could do X, Y, Z. And that's what, I guess that's how me and you are sitting here right now. That's how yeah. I met you, right? And then the that took me. So the downside there was 30 seconds of my time. Mm-hmm. Let's say nothing happened. I've lost 30 seconds. Yeah. If if it goes well, you've met like a new good friend, right? Yeah. So the asymmetry, you can, you can see everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, asymmetrical opportunities and asymmetrical risks are something that I try and map a lot of my life onto as it is at the moment. Perfect example of that is someone tagged me in a tweet from Daniel Sloss saying that he was coming to Newcastle to do a live show. I replied and said, hi, Daniel, before you go and do your live show, do you want to come on a podcast? 
you've got a lad with a beautiful northern accent uh, <laughs> and five million listen minutes over the last year. Are you up for it? And he replied and said, yeah. yeah. Downstream from that, me and Daniel speak on WhatsApp probably once a week now. I've got a good mate. I've probably got somewhere to stay when I want to go to Edinburgh. And we hit 50K views in mm-hmm. like a couple of weeks on that. And you're like, that was asymmetric opportunity. Yeah. Mate, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, next one I want to go on to, second and third order thinking. Or like, yeah. oh, just first order, second, third order thinking. So the way, this is like a very like simple one, but it's one of those things, until you break it down to the first principles, you never really understand it, which is the first order effects of your actions. So I, like the best analogy I have is the two duality of taking the stairs or taking the elevator. So first order uh, consequences of both. So if you take the stairs, first order consequence, a bit of shit. Like you feel, you get, might get a bit of a stitch, you're out of breath, right? Whereas if you take the elevator, the first order consequence is great. You're just you're there, right? Just stood there. You don't have to do anything. But then you look at the second order consequences. So the second order consequences of taking the stairs is that you get like some cardiovascular exercise. And particularly if you do this over like 10 years, mm. I know Jeff Bezos apparently never takes a lift. It always takes the stairs. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you do that over 10 years, you get the cardiovascular benefits. And then the second order consequences of being in the lift yeah. is that you're getting no cardiovascular benefits. And then the third order consequences, when you go even further than that, like further in the future, which is that you're actually wiring your brain. Like, so whenever you go, okay, I'm presented with a difficult option or an easy option, which one do I take? If you take the stairs all the time, you're wiring your brain, oh, I always take the difficult option. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you take the elevator all the time, the third order consequences are that you're wiring your brain to take the easy option. So you almost have first order, second order, third order. And often what's e- what gives you the most return in the first order fucks you in the second and third order. Mm-hmm. But what gives you, uh, what screws you in the first order actually provides so much more benefit in the second and third order. But James Clear talks about this a lot in Atomic Habits, where he says that the reason that people continually do bad habits is because the felt cost at the time is almost not there. And the reason that people don't do good habits is that the felt discomfort is actually quite palpable, mm-hmm. but that the goals are hidden downstream from that. And that you need to look at, am I doing something that future me would be happy about? Is me tomorrow going to be happy about what me now is doing? And that's probably a pretty good way to look at it. Mm-hmm. I think a good way to look at second second order thinking is predict in however long it's going to take for this decision to kick in, whether or not you would think that that will be a good decision. Because the you right now and the you tomorrow are two very different people when there's a, a crucial decision in front of you, or even a small decision in front of you. And a good way to for anyone who's trying to stick to a diet, like... If you've got a chocolate bar in your hand, you right now wants to eat the chocolate bar. You tomorrow might think, fucking wish I hadn't eaten that chocolate bar. Like you tomorrow will exist for a lot longer than you right now will. Yeah. Because you right now is transient and you tomorrow is forever. Well, Kahneman has that bit where it's like, um, where it's much easier to spot those mistakes in other people than it is to, than it is to see them in yourself. Well, that's why I think the Jordan Petersonism of, uh, be friends with people who want the best for you and treat yourself like somebody you are responsible for helping. Like if you have those two things, be friends with people who want the best for you and treat yourself like you're someone you are responsible for helping. If you can map that over the top of personal and social mm. for yourself, and we, we went back to the very, very first uh, mental model that you brought up, which was just not even aiming for wins, simply avoiding losses. Yeah, Like you have Pareto'd 
uh, the vast majority. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. Um, you have managed to get the vast majority of the benefit. One hundred percent already. There, like one. Uh, this is a mental model I've sort of created. It's more of an activity than a mental model, but again, it all ties together, right? Which I call the um, the Buffett Franklin Super Stack. Like I do have to work on the naming a bit, yeah. But I'll explain it. I don't so think that that one's going to catch on. Basically, yet, I mean, wait till you hear it, right? Mm-hmm. So Warren Buffett has like this great exercise so you know how people talk about values right like what are your values like what do you believe in it's very woolly thinking again going back to the happiness one right so the way to looking at it from like Kahneman's perspective where you can see stuff much clearer in other people than you can yourself so Buffett gave a speech um, I forgot what university it's at when he told them to look around the classroom at your friends and this is a great exercise to do and think who would you say you had a budget to invest who would you invest 10% in over your friends like which friends And which friends would you short? <laughs> and the great thing about this, you can obviously do it for financial well-being, but you could almost look at it. Let's say, imagine that happiness was a currency, mm-hmm. and go, who would you think? Who would you invest ten percent in? Who would you short ten percent? So once you've got a list of those names, you go, okay, why would I invest in him, or why would I invest in her? Oh, it's because whenever, um, whenever in a social interaction, they always go the extra mile for the other person or they're incredibly honest, or they're incredibly hardworking. Mm. And you look at the people who are short and you go, oh, that person's like really narcissistic. They always make it about themselves. So then you know, okay, those are, Buffett says, those are the values I need. So I'm going to start looking at how I can implement them myself. And then those are the values I go to avoid and make sure I never have them in myself. And this is how, so that's Buffett. And then Franklin kicks in. Because Benjamin Franklin used to have a list of 13 virtues that every day when he would get home would go through them and say, did I do that? So I've got it now, like I've got a Google sheet, of course. So it's like, so let's say, high agency earlier that's one of the ones in there so I'll go Monday at the end of the day I'll go did I do anything actually high agency today no I didn't okay so where, where, and out. I think where could I have done that okay and I'll write that in the sheet okay I could have done that and as a result then you're like you've actually made value something which you can understand and apply which I think is like incredibly difficult for people yeah the instantiation daily of the processes or the systems and the feedback mechanism to ensure that you're continuing to do those which, if you continue to do them, allow you to keep on the trajectory towards the goals that are meaningful to you, is, I think it's so important. And the option to use mental models is the steps. It's the individual steps that you can take, or it's the stepping stones that you can use on the river that you're moving over. Mm -hmm. It's not about getting to the other side. It's just about continuing to step on the correct stones. And once you do that without putting your foot in the water, you're like, okay, well, like if I continue to do this at a high enough pace, I'm mean, like the other side is coming. Like mm-hmm. it's just it's just a case of me getting there. What else have we got? So this is, again, like this is more like what mental models can we take from this discipline that we can apply elsewhere? So this was one I'm fascinated with, and I'll open it up to you because I've had a few thoughts about it. Right. So you have the music industry, you have the movie industry, and you have the gaming industry. I I assumed I wasn't sure which one would rank highest, but I assumed it was relatively the same value. The gaming industry is worth more than the music and movie, like entertainment industry combined, which is crazy, right? So I'm immediately thinking that the gaming industry have a greater understanding of human psychology better than anybody on the planet. So what mental models can you take from the way they're designing video games to apply to real life? And I'm thinking, I know some people who are unbelievable at video games, like world champion level or like Mm. elite level and are absolute messes at their own life. And like, if you go down, like, I don't want to bore people, but if you go down, like, the whole simulation hypothesis, like, this is a simulation, we're basically playing a big video game, right? Like, mm-hmm. you're just immediately some character with some uh, traits and some stuff, and you've got some goals to aim to it. It's basically a video game. So why are people succeeding at 
this video game, but then when it comes to real life of being like awful at it, like what's the gap there? What's so what do video games have that that most people's lives are missing, in your opinion? Sense of escapism, sense of belonging, sense of community, mm-hmm. um, obvious feedback mechanism that shows progression. Um, so one, I agree with loads of points there. One thing that I thought was really like obvious is parameters, um, mm-hmm. which you, if you ever do like basic programming, you need parameters to define a function, right? So you need like, let's say right now, my, the parameters of my life or the everyday person, it could be so wide. Like I need to check Facebook, I need to check Instagram, I need to research five, 10 different careers. I need, I need to reach out to these people. There's so much stuff going on that no wonder anxiety in Google trends, like Dean can put that up there, right? Anxiety in Google trends is at its highest of ever because it's just unlimited parameters and people just- Paradox of choice. People just melt in it, right? Whereas in a video, let's say me and you are playing FIFA or Madden or what, whatever the kids play these days, right? I'm all for video games. Um, there's a clear parameter. I'm trying to get the ball in your net. You're trying to get the ball in my net. Whoever gets the ball in the net the most wins. Mm. So that's the parameter. Whereas most people wake up with like a hundred different things they have to do that day. Mm. So having one or two clear things which are falsifiable against, I think is one thing that video games have. The next thing that they have is levels. So an issue that uh, I've seen this with friends who like start businesses or have goals, right? Is that they'll launch something and, be, and their goal was to make a hundred pound online in a day and they don't make anything. And as a result, they immediately quit. And Daniel Gross, that has an unbelievable metaphor for this, which is, let's say, for example, right now I'm at level zero. And if you want to learn anything, like if you do this framework, it's, it's the most powerful learning technique I've found. So let's say level 10 is making £100 online every single day. I'm at level zero right now. So what a lot of people do, let's say they learn how to do like lookalike ads. They learn how to set up an online store. They learn how to research niches. They get to level four, right? You go, I've not hit level 10, I quit. Mm. But whereas in video games, you you know there's little levels each way, so you're constantly stepping up the progress, right? And that's why CrossFit, like Daniel Gross talks about this, CrossFit is an unbelievable video game um, because it has so many of those core components in there where you're always progressing each day. Another thing that video games have is, um, you know what the biggest one is? I think it's identity. So when something goes wrong in my day, like because I identify as me, it can ruin my whole day. Whereas as a video game, you look at the character as a third person. Mm. So if you can almost do that with your own life, you can see things crystal clear. The same way when you see friends who are going through relationship issues or they're they're in a job that they hate and they're not quitting it, you can see it so clearly in somebody else because you're completely detached from them. It's like Buddhism, right? Detachment's key. And in a video game, you have that. You don't, if the character fails, yeah, of course you're a bit pissed off, but you're not there three years later talking to a psychologist going, I can't yeah. believe I failed. You know what I mean? Treat yourself as if you're someone you're responsible for helping. Exactly. But look at look at it from an eye, like look at other people, go, what mistakes are they making? And then go, okay, how am I making those mistakes? Um, like Identity is a, a huge factor as well as the sense of community. So what whoever takes the psychology models from video games and applies them to real real life is going gonna, is gonna to win big. Awesome. Man, what have we got left? Um, Should we do a quick fire round? What have we got? We can do. So I have a really, really basic one, which is um, inputs versus outputs. This comes from like computer science. I got this from an episode of Tim Ferriss where there's a guy called Sammy. I can't remember his last name. He's like one of the world's leading cybersecurity experts. And he, uh, is, if you search MySpace Sammy, like he hacked into MySpace back in the day and basically added himself to everybody's uh, friend. Yeah, I remember this. He ran a thing which he added himself to 10 and then that person added 
10 of their friends to him and then 10 and then 10 yeah, and then yeah. exponentially and he got like all all of my space within like a yeah. few days <laughs> so um but it was interesting like tim ferris is asking like what do you learn from programming or like that you've applied to your own life so like a mental model from programming or computer science which is inputs and outputs if you want different it's that whole albert einstein quote right if you want different outputs you have to have different inputs like um sam altman who's part of yc has this like great quote which is like extreme people get extreme results mm. and normal people get normal results mm-hmm. i'm fascinated by how many people want to be cool or be normal yet want completely different results to everyone else yeah so embracing being weird as a way of life i think is like one of the most powerful things that you can do because if you're not weird by the very diff- definition you're regressing to the mean you are like, average man I, i'm i sing from the same hymn sheet as yourself why we are fated to be lonely by the school of life alain de Botton on there which is my most cited video by miles considering it's four minutes long in that he says that loneliness is a kind of tax that we have to pay to atone for a certain complexity of mind if you're a person who has contrarian thoughts or is different to the mean, different to the normal distribution. If you're out on the tails, it's natural for your thoughts to be too subtle, contrary or alarming to be acceptable by society at large. Mm. And given the choice between honesty and acceptability, most of us choose the latter. But to be uncommon amongst uncommon men and to achieve things that other people haven't, you need to presume that you have to do things that other people are not. So this is it, right? So one of my favorite people for this is Youssef, right? Because he's just, he's the niche guy amongst niche guys, <laughs> as the uncommon amongst uncommon men metaphor would go. And if if Youssef's okay with it, could Dean put the video of him doing the uh, Snatch. snatches in public? Yeah, so... Boom. Bing! So that video right there, I think could say so much about the way to behave. And I've started like embracing this. So my favorite quote is that people think, we never even got onto this mental model, the map versus terrain, right? Mm-hmm. So people think, they're go- people think they're going to rise to the occasion, whereas they actually sink to their level of training. So this is a mental model that comes from like Navy SEALs and Royal Marines in that they drill everything into your fucking consciousness so you never make a mistake. Whereas most people think, I'll read a book on by Peter Thiel called Zero to One, I'm going to be a billionaire. Mm-hmm. No, it's about what you drill every single day. Same reason that Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't have a cover on his phone. Exactly right. So if you want to be, if you want to stand out from the crowd, you can't wait till that moment comes along when Warren Buffett calls you up and goes, yes, I want to invest X, Y, Z. No, you have to practice being fucking weird every single day. So the Youssef one there, what's great about it is that he's drilling people looking at him like he's a weirdo for a positive action. That's the key, right? So I'll do this with service stations now. I'll just do yoga in public, um, and I start, you start, you get that monkey mind going, oh, people are looking at you. People think you're weird. But there's people there who are eating like McDonald's. There's another person smoking there, right? And nobody's judging them. And that's an action that's negative for them. Just more acceptable. But I'm doing one that's, yeah, exactly. So you have to condition yourself to be able to deal with that and drill it into your consciousness. That's high agency again. High agency, right? So then this is, we'll go back to the first principles, redesigning education. The first class, and I would, this is one thing I would do with my kids, every single month we do the ash conformity test. You know the ash conformity test? Um, so they have like a rule, they have like loads of lines. It's like Darren Brown 101. And they'll go, How, which line's the longest? And it's clearly, that. so n- nine of the other people in the room are actors, but the, the individual doesn't know that they're actors. And they will say that the line that's this long is... 
is longer than the one that's that long. So they all point to the right one, even though it's clearly shorter. Mm. And some people, a lot of people will go, yeah, I agree with everybody else in the room. Yeah. So we have to drill kids to be ash negative, like one, drill it into their consciousness. One of the problems with doing that, though, is that you need a workforce which is compliant. Yeah. You need to have people that will follow the rules. It doesn't do for McDonald's. I disagree. But, well, okay, so it, it, this might not be the most effective way to be, but it's the easiest way for the current iteration of capitalism to yeah. continue. But if we, like, drill, create enough... Satoshi Nakamoto's enough software engineers who people thought for themselves like it'll all be automated in a couple of years time right yeah okay that, yes you would also then have a bunch of people who are you would have a lot more revolutions which I think would be quite chaotic mm-hmm. and potentially quite quite dangerous um, one of the things before we finish I want to finish on Matt versus Terrain it's, it's a lovely one to finish my on. one. Um, one of the things that you touched on at the very beginning was about avoiding mistakes and Jordan Peterson talks about this an awful lot what he says is that there's a, an experiment where rats are in a tube and they starve the rats. At the end of the tube, they waft in the smell of cheese. The rats' tails are attached to a spring and the spring uh, gives the force back. It um, records the force back to a computer. The rats are running to try and get this cheese and they're starving. They haven't been fed for a very long time. You'd think that this rat is running as hard as it can towards something that it wants. Record the amount of force, reset. Another iteration they put the smell of cheese at the end of the tube and then they waft the smell of a cat in from behind and the rats pull harder. And what that shows is not only do you need to run towards something that you want, but you need to run away from something that you fear. And that's why Jordan Peterson's uh, understandmyself.com and self-authoring, in the self-authoring suite, one of the things that he asks people to do is to say, where would you be in six months, one year, three years, five years, if you continue to do all of the worst habits that you have, mm-hmm. now where would you be if you did all of the best habits that you have? Mm-hmm. And the difference between that contrast, the difference between those two situations is so stark. You're like, not only am I running towards something that I want, I'm running away from something that I fear. I look, yeah, that exercise is really powerful. Um, the map versus terrain point, which is, if you break it down to its first principles, right? So maps are, by their very nature an artificial version of reality, whereas terrain is the actual version of reality. And where possible, you want to seek out terrains and avoid maps. And this is probably, if I had to look back on like advice I give to my 20-year-old self and probably I'll give to myself right now in five years' time, that's the biggest one. Like, inst- I, I use this metaphor, right? What would you rather have live in a world where everybody's passed their theory driving test and that's all they've done, or everybody's failed their practical test, I would take failed their practical test mm-hmm. every single time. Mm-hmm. And we live in a world where you think because you read a book about a subject that you know it. So the closer you can get to reality, the better. So this is my issue with gratitude journals, which I think are nice. Mm. But let's say on on a, a true feeling perspective, it's a two out of 10 because you're sat there in your warm bedroom and you're picturing like, for example, that you've not got X, Y, Z. But if, for example, you walked around the hospital ward and like looked at people who were dying in the eyes, mm. like, that is terrain. Like you're really fucking seeing it. Mm. And until you drill something into your consciousness, you can't like truly feel it. Until you've been in that environment, like seek out like ter- like what's better, having an MBA or actually running a startup, right? Like, like 
always go to the terrain. I think people seek out maps because it's easy and you can avoid doing, and I do this more than anyone, right? So you can avoid doing the hard work. But you, um, I remember Yusuf told me that you had said to him, hey man, I've got this new project that I'm considering working on, but I'm not going to talk to you about it until I've done a lot of work on it because I know that I will, my brain will receive a kick of dopamine and a sense of satisfaction from me talking about it yeah. as much as me doing the work. And I'm not prepared to give myself that reward because that is me playing with the map as opposed to seeing the terrain. Yeah. And you're totally right. The map by its very definition is a lower fidelity, lower resol- resolution simulacrum of what is actually occurring. 100%. And this is one of the reasons why people become plan addicts. It's why they love, like New Year's resolutions are such a huge thing, but when people don't put them into practice, again, we go back to systems versus goals. Like the system is the daily instantiation of the actions you need to take to achieve the goals that you have determined are meaningful to you by the values that you have already conceived. So I think it gives a perfect note to end on, which is two of them, which is the green lumber fallacy, because it's related direct to map and terrain, and uh, plank knowledge. So the green lumber fallacy, uh, it was related to a trader who was trading in green lumber. And this guy knew everything about fucking green lumber, like knew it better than anybody else, but was losing money every single day. And there was one guy who didn't understand why green lumber was green. I think he believed it was painted green or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he was winning. So he didn't even understand the product, but he understood the terrain. And you see it in the social media world where there's some people who know the, like have read articles on these platforms. But I know someone who doesn't know who Sheryl Sandberg is, doesn't know who the COO of Facebook is, but can build you a Facebook page better than every single person. And this comes down to plank. Have you heard of plank knowledge? It's my favorite one, right? So um, this comes from Charlie Munger's speech. So there's this theor- theoretical physicist, Max Planck, around about the 1930s. So there's obviously not many images out there. So nobody knows what he looks like, but they've heard of him. And he was would go around giving these speeches across Europe and he would obviously go deep into theoretical physics but he had a chauffeur with him so the chauffeur like had done like a hundred of these and would sit and watch the lecture and the chauffeur said um uh can I do this lecture um and mm. so basically he just mm-hmm. recited it word for word mm. and and at the like, absolutely smashed it and at the end somebody asked the chauffeur who they thought was Planck um, excuse me Mr Planck could I ask a question about ABC and he goes that's such a silly question I'll let my chauffeur answer it and I don't know what they never know whether that's, that's a true so tale or what funny. but that's the, so Munger calls this the difference between chauffeur knowledge and Planck knowledge and there's 99% of people out there who like you see it in the social media space I'm sure you see it in every single space where they, they can recite all the good stuff but what's your PL? Like, what have you actually produced here? Like, do you actually know when you question, go why, 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 when you apply the Feynman technique, mm. can you really answer those questions? That's, that is a new one for me, but it's something that I was talking about with the guy who actually gave me this lovely jumper that I'm wearing, which has saved me from my sweat patches from earlier on, hot under these lights. Um, I was talking to Ricky yesterday about people who are 25 years old giving life coaching. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm 24 yeah. I'm talking about mental models fuck me no but you understand <laughs> I know you the process you're not doing it from you're not saying I have had these life experiences yeah. you should listen to me what you're saying is I understand the, the lattice work of understanding mm-hmm. that oh, you should lay this 100%. across and one of the things that he was talking about was these people just have zero skin in the game so you know what Nassim Talib says about life coaches he says the only the only thing you can learn from a life coach is how to be a life coach it's great. Nassim Taleb is, uh, he's such a motherfucker, man. I feel like, I feel like he, I've asked him to come on and he said that uh, he's uh, towards the end of the year, he might have a little bit of room. 
Um, cool. Him and Gad Saad as well are both. Cool. It would both be cool. He's one of those guys who, for me, it was the same as when I sat down with Jordan Hall. Um, people who have that degree of understanding sometimes. So I don't really get nervous before doing podcasts anymore. Um, but Jordan Hall, I did. And Nassim Taleb, I did. I, I probably will do. Gad Saad, I would. Oddly enough, Peterson, I wouldn't. And one of the reasons is that I think that they, those guys occupy a very different mental space to me. And my, I always know that when I'm doing a podcast, no matter what happens, as long as me and the person that I'm talking to are kind of on the same wavelength, doesn't really matter how fucking awry the conversation goes. You can always just bring it back to crack. Yeah. Like, but how the fuck do you have crack with Nassim Taleb? Mm. Like, the the guy is a monster. Like, the same... But uh, Naval, I'd feel like, no, cool. Like, we'd be on a level. There'd be something that I would be able to find that's common ground. Yeah. Nassim Taleb. I think Taleb, you're fine. If you listen to his interviews, he's a bit different. I think is he? Okay, yeah. Is he less, less yeah, kind of militant? I, yeah, yeah, He's. I think he's really cool. Okay. Well, that'd yeah. be, that would be interesting to do. But, George, man, today has been fantastic. Um, any resources which we've quoted today? I know that we have gone through an awful lot. There's been some name dropping galore. If we were able to tag all of the people that had been mentioned in this podcast, I think it would be, uh, it would be longer than the tweets would allow. At George Mack, M A C? M A C K on Twitter. Yeah. On Twitter. You need to follow this guy. The, the, I need to tweet more. You, I'm you, busy. You can't tweet but more. I don't, but I don't want to be a map. I don't want to be a map guy. Like, we're just talking about life and you're never actually living it. So, with a zero sum game, we didn't get onto that. But, <laughs> like, time's limited. I do need to tweet more. But, um, but yeah, it's been good fun. Man, thank you very much. <laughs>